0: Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Karim Siraj Deen. Thank you for tuning in. Andreas Hamza Sortsas joins me today to discuss atheism and the divine reality. We talk about reasons why people become atheists and much more. If you'd like to check out the video of this podcast interview and more exclusive videos of my other guests of the show, please join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. Links are in every description of every show. Check out exclusive videos plus more.
1: Islam is more than a belief. It's a form of knowing that changes your mind, transforms your mind, liberates your heart, and transforms the way you relate in the world.
0: Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. everybody. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I have today with me Hamzat Surtzaz. He is calling in from the UK. Uh, I have followed his work for quite some time. And uh, mashallah, he's done a lot of great effort in dawah, um, the cross-section of Islam, philosophy, and science. And specifically today, we're going to unpack a bit more his book here called The Divine Reality, which I recommend everyone get out there and purchase that. I almost feel like it's like the Bible, or a guide, if you will, for how Muslims can deal with the whole atheist phenomenon. Um, With that said, Hamza, welcome to the show. JazakAllah for having me, thank you. So, sir, I'd love first, you know, for you to just start off by telling us a little bit more about what you do and why you do what you do.
1: Good question. Converted to Islam around 16 years ago, alhamdulillah. And ever since, it's been a very interesting journey, full of ups and downs and traversing the path of learning from yourself, learning from your mistakes, learning from your environment. And it's been a very interesting experience. Ever since that time, I wanted to share the thing that I loved. And even before I became Muslim, I wanted to share the thing that I love. We do it all the time, like I was a great fan of Bruce Lee and Wing Chun Kung Fu and all of these things, and I wanted to share that. Nice. So when I became a Muslim, I wanted to share the thing that I was passionate about, which was al-Islam. So that's what I do, basically. I try and articulate a compassionate and intelligent case for Islam. At the moment, I am the CEO of an organization called IERA, which is dedicated in reconnecting humanity to the Creator and we aim to achieve this compassionately and intelligently all around the world. And I wrote a book called The Divine Reality, God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism. I have recently gone back into academia. And I am on the path towards a PhD focusing on the philosophy of the mind.
0: Ooh. Yeah. So you're pretty much going to become a psychologist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, no. You know, studying philosophy sometimes... Creates more confusion than anything else right
0: right give you a little context to that joke was you know I always said you know Psychology is kind of this you know we say it's the study of the self But it's also in a lot of ways the philosophy of the mind. because as someone who my passion is about developing a contemporary framework for Islamic psychology for Muslims in the West I have certainly learned from my studies and experience that like you also describe in your book that the philosophical you know suppositions or premise that we begin any line of thinking or inquiry from is going to impact your instrumentation, your interpretation, what results are possible and what isn't, right? Same mm-hmm. thing is true for psychology, you know? Um, naturally, if you have a certain worldview that tells you this is healthy, this is unhealthy, this is a disorder or not, but what about, you know, when we see, let's say, Islam is a type of its own medicine for the human being, right? There's a There's a whole other framework of what the human condition means than what you sometimes find in Western psychology, even though there are some, of course, crossover. But this is, I think, a a very important point for us to keep in mind, especially for our
1: discussion today. Absolutely. Like, especially in neuroscience, Professor Raymond Tallis, he talks about the neuroscientists that think that examining the brain and looking at the neurophysiology and the neurochemical firings and the neurochemical stuff that's going on you're going to understand consciousness and solve the hard problem. But that's not necessarily true because you assume a philosophical assumption, which is that, well, neurochemical firings are identical to inner subjective conscious states. That is not a scientific point. That's a philosophical point, which requires philosophy. And yeah, so you're absolutely right. You know, there is no such thing as a philosophy-free method of inquiry or a metaphysics-free method of inquiry. Everything has what I call first principle, non-negotiable first assumptions that you require in order to have progress and knowledge in a particular sphere of, 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 of knowledge or understanding. So, and many people don't, don't get that, especially people who are like, you know, the Google social media fanatics, you know, those type of... Uh, Uh, Atheists who, you know, just like think science is everything. It's great, it's beautiful, but it's a method of study and it does have limitations. And some of these limitations are based on first principles or based on axioms or based on a certain philosophical understanding of the world. So as you know, Professor Elliot Sober, he's a philosopher of science and he's an atheist. He, he, He makes it very clear in his essay, Empiricism. He says, you know, scientists at any moment in time are restricted to the observations they have at hand and, and, and those observations can be direct or indirect observations so already you have a restriction do you see the point that there is a limit and there is a scope so yeah maybe we could explore that a bit later i guess
0: tell us more about the book the divine reality and what was your intention behind writing this uh you know i would consider it to be one of the most important books of our you know generation
1: if you will oh well, well you know i, I recently just uh, published the revised edition which conceptually is not that much different. I just fixed some sentence structures, maybe just, you know, made the arguments a little bit clearer here and there, added a few more contentions. It's not a second edition or anything, but it's a revised version. But notwithstanding that, the reason I wrote the book, and there are multiple reasons. One main one main reason was, is I really wanted to redefine myself. <laughs> I know that sounds really weird, but I realized as I was getting older and I have children and I was trying to get back into academia. I realized, I was like, Hamza, what the hell have you been doing for 15 years, man? What have you been doing for all, all of this time? Wow. Has, it, has, has it been ego? Has it just you been, you know, just trying to prove you're right and prove everyone else wrong? Has it been about you imposing and not wanting to be imposed upon? Has mm. it been about just looking good and not wanting wanting to look bad? You know, these are the kind of the traits of the nafs, the traits of the ego, I felt that, you know, if I was purpose driven rather than personal driven, I was purpose driven, then, you know, one of the greatest things that I can do is actually write something because writing is going to last longer than your lifetime. It's going to change people more than a lecture does in my view. Like if I were to give a lecture based on the nuances in my book, it might take me 32 hours. Who's going to listen to 32 hours? But when someone has a book, you know, a, a book's battery doesn't die, man. You know what I'm saying? It was about redefining myself because I've done a hell of a lot of mistakes, right? And they're all online on YouTube for you to see. And, you know, one of the excuses, if I have any excuses is, well, you know, I became Muslim in 2002. We didn't have social media. We didn't have these institutes around us, these scholars. Um, It was trial and error. You just had to basically adapt and copy. And just, you know, if you're passionate about something and young, you'll do many mistakes. But I realized that you know, the past doesn't equal the future, and that you should always try to rediscover yourself and create a new realm of possibility for yourself. So, you know, this book was like Toba for me. <laughs> it was like so it was like social intellectual Toba. I, I wrote the book for that reason. Another reason I wrote the book is because we don't have one good book on atheism. And I was like, oh my god, pulling my hair out. There was not one good book I could give to my friends.
0: Right.
1: Now, that's not to say that. My book's the best because you know every book has shortcomings. You know, there's still typos in my book, right? And I'm and I'm still I'm I'm happy about that because Harry Potter has around a hundred errors in it too. <sighs> <laughs> That's really cool. But the point I'm trying to say is we didn't have a good book to to refer to or or to use as literature to say here here's a good book for college students because there was a massive crisis on campus. There's a huge intellectual and existential crisis in the West, especially. Concerning uh, Muslims and non-Muslims alike, and I, I really believe that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, the likes of Al-Ghazali, for example, the 11th-century polymath and theologian, and many other of ulema that answered these questions for us. So all we have to do is con- is make contemporary what 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 they what they taught us. Right. So, for me, you know, we needed a book, right? So we didn't have one. So. I spent a few years actually just writing the book and uh, making sure it was well referenced. And I didn't want to just focus just on pure philosophy because I really believe, you know, Islam is not really a philosophy. It's a Theo philosophy is based on, you know, not kind of abstract deductive thinking, but it has existential and spiritual and um, social, neutral.
0: psychological,
1: Absolutely, yeah. it's holistic. It's absolutely holistic. So, uh, you know, as Al-Ghazali, he said, you know, don't think your iman, your faith is going to come as a result of some kind of uh, careful premises and a a conclusion that necessarily follows in a deductive argument. He even said, if you think your iman is going to come just from that alone, that's a bidah, that's that's an innovation. And I don't use that language, right? You know, if you know my public work, I don't talk about stuff like this. But this is very powerful because Al-Ghazali is saying, you know, and he says that, your faith, your iman, your internal conviction will come as a result of internalizing the tradition. Right. And this is this is Ilm, this is true knowledge. Because Islam is not a belief, bro. I'm right. I'm gonna I'm gonna start creating a narrative, I'm gonna shout and scream this all the time. Islam is not a belief. Now, people are gonna pause this, take a snapshot, put it on Twitter saying hamza don't crazy. <laughs> but the point is Islam is not a belief. If you mean belief. Like, you know, the kind of philosophical, mundane understanding of belief. Like I have three pence in my pocket, or there is a table that is a ceiling. This is a computer screen. Islam is more than a belief. It's a form of knowing that changes your mind, transforms your mind, liberates your heart and transforms the way you relate in the world, your actions, because to be is to be related and how you relate with yourself, with the external world and essentially how you relate with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Islam is, is more than just an, a, a belief in terms of an abstract, you know, cold piece of, of knowledge or abstract, you know, mundane presupposition or supposition. Like there are three pens in my pocket, but rather Islam is so profound. profound. It's a form of knowing that transforms your mind your mind affects what's in your heart and how you relate in the world. Now, that seeing Islam in that way is fundamentally different because, uh, Brother Kareem, you know, if, if if I were to say to you, give me three healthy foods, what would you say?
0: Three healthy foods I would say um, cucumbers, dates, yep. let's throw in uh, carrots.
1: Good. So, vegetables and fruits, right? Vegetables, fruits, and grains. Now, let me just see if I'm uh, fortunate here now. What did you have for dinner last night? I don't eat dinner, actually.
0: <laughs> uh, for lunch, I had, uh, I had carrots and squash, and I had bechamel, which you guys
1: also make in Greek cuisine. All right, all yeah. right. I mean, you had healthy food, good. But if you, if you ask the majority of the people, they had something unhealthy, right? Maybe for breakfast they had, you know, pancakes with syrup. So the point I'm trying to say here is someone may know something, as a supposition right but it doesn't necessarily change them or transform them or affect their state of being meaning how they relate in the world so i may know that good foods is grains vegetables and fruits but you know this morning maybe i had like donuts for example so there is a gap between your abstract knowing and your becoming and your being now the whole point of islam is that it's a form of knowing that changes your being how does it change your being through spiritual practice, dhikr, dua, salah, reading of the Quran. So I don't even, see, I'm going to waffle a lot, by the way. So uh-huh. have,
0: well, yeah. Like, let's let's let me bring you back to our, our kind of structure here. So let me just summarize what I understood. So initially, yeah. I asked you why did you write this book and tell us more about what you do. And one thing I wanted to validate or point out, which I think is valuable for everybody, is this idea that look, all of us are going to have growing pains and growing edges during our path, whether you're born Muslim or a convert to Islam. And certainly, you know, as somebody like yourself, who I've seen, you know, videos from 10 years back, probably at this point, right? And it's like, I notice even the difference and the nuance or even the wisdom that has evolved in you and other teachers as well. It's like, you see a video from someone 20 years ago versus 10, you're like, wow, it's like, it's good that people See that we have to have evolution in our spirituality, our intellect, our maturity, right? And that is the. I think this is one of the big problems of sometimes our Muslim community is we have this collective mentality that to be a good Muslim means you're perfect all the time. We don't have room for vulnerability, for making mistakes, for being human, humble. And it's like no, as soon as you cause a blunder, it's like you're out, or this person is just you can't you know listen to them anymore. And it's like where do we? It's like that you know salvation archetype that the person has to be perfect for me to you know benefit it's like no liberate yourself from accepting imperfection and recognize that only Allah is perfect and that's the whole point is we're always refining and testing and tweaking ourselves to increase in our station of consciousness and you know maqam with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that's a very important point that you mentioned about your own journey and that's been part of your actual realized Uh, work as well, not just like, here's what I do, but also what it's done to me. The second thing that you brought up, which is also important, I get is this difference between having information and real knowledge, right? So I can know there's information of how to eat healthy, but whether or not I internalize embody that and practice it and experience the benefit of it for myself, it never becomes crystallized as this is the right knowledge, and we know the Quran always talks about There's always with Iman. And what's also interesting is this idea of Iman, as you know, is connected similar to the word faith in English is really about trust and security in something, right? Yeah. So it's almost like, what do I entrust myself to more? Atheism, Islam, you know, uh, whatever, this, that. And that's one of the ways I kind of get this idea of the point of a belief system is to give you this Mental platform to now launch into experiential and practical, you know, reality in life, right? So this is kind of the point I was taking away from that is like you're also realizing and part of the thing that we all have to remember is It's not just about memorizing the dogma or the aqidah of this guy or that guy and like and that's how a lot of Muslims approach it Copy and paste the hadith, the Quran, this is, you know, no, you don't believe in this and that. It's like, dude, you know, I, I get all that stuff, but you know, the whole point of this deen and my understanding is we have to, as Muslims or followers of this path, always ask ourselves, what would Allah and his messenger want from me right now or in this moment or in this situation? And you can't figure that stuff out autonomously if you're just a parrot memorizing tradition. Right, Absolutely. There has to be some living breathing experience and in and out with that right mistakes You got to scratch your you know spiritual elbows and knees so to speak right? I mean that has to happen, you know, otherwise you're just your religion is just some extension of your ego Oftentimes right or it's more about you know, we're really good at appearing religious or islamic and that's very different from being religious and Islamic, which is the message I got from your initial uh, sharing. uh,
1: and you just summarized it very eloquently.
0: Excellent. I'd like to also now go into the, uh, you know, the depth of this book a bit today. And one of the ways I thought would be interesting to start this off because, you know, as uh, Brother Hamza was saying, this book is also, I think, extremely useful for any Muslim who has doubts who is, you know, learning about, you know, the alternative worldviews of atheism or scientism or whatever it is. And especially myself and the work that I do, I have found myself consulting and counseling many college students that ask a lot of these questions, as well as adults or people in their 30s, you know, etc., and it's nice now that I can say, look, we can talk about and unpack all those things in conversation, but I also recommend you go read The Divine Reality, because these are all English speakers, right? So, you know, God bless you and your efforts, and may Allah, you know, put barakah in this uh, project. So, one of the things that I've learned from my, you know, few years on this planet is there are, seems to be general categories as to why somebody is atheist or leaves Islam to become atheist, Okay. The first one is what I would call, let's say, the emotional category or this type of like emotional displacement. Um, in other words, you know, some kind of trauma or loss or pain happened to me in my life. And because it's so hard to reconcile emotionally, um, I'm just going to, you know, say goodbye to all this stuff or I'm not going to go with it. Um, or somebody has gone through severe trauma or abuse or a type of neglect. So this type of difficulty in one's life perhaps the meaning can't be reconciled or coped with well my own family let's say were very abusive and hurtful to me so how can i now extend that to some greater caregiver in in the sky so to speak right it's like the human being it's it's difficult to sometimes get there and we know that some of the big thinkers in atheism today when you really look at their backgrounds, a lot of them have some of these stories, right? Like my wife died or my best friend died and I didn't understand why. And since then, I've always been like, well, there can't be something greater because this hurt is so deep. But that's the first category that I notice people, that's a reason why people choose this worldview and somehow to reconcile that deeper emotional wound or pain. What are your thoughts about that first
1: uh, suggestion? Yeah, I mean, I I would argue that people even... People's beliefs are not necessarily a good predictor for their behaviors. Sometimes, you know, the emotional state is a good predictor for their behavior. So I, I would agree that emotions play a huge part because we're not just abstract intellectual robots. Right. And I, I somehow try and discuss that in the book with the concept of the fitrah, you know, that we have this innate knowledge of God and that he deserves worship, but it gets clouded. And, you know, we can uncloud the fitrah to awaken the truth within, not, only necessarily using rational arguments. You may have to buy the person a pizza, right? You may have to have a positive engagement. And you know, with this emotional thing, I've got quite a few experiences, actually. I remember there was this atheist who came from Pakistan, I believe, and he mm-hmm. was doing a master's or he just finished a master's in physics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He me in one of the universities in the UK and he said, you know, your argument is false or something because that doesn't make sense outside of time. Now, you know, sorry, doesn't make sense outside of the universe. Now, I had an answer to this because he presupposed an empirical understanding of causality where I could argue that it's a priori or it's innate, but I didn't want to get into that because we have to be more intellectually and spiritually mature to understand that people's you know, first utterances or arguments are not necessarily a representation of, of, of their current state of being. Right. So I sensed that in him. So I said to him, what do you mean by causality? And I said, which one of the definitions that they haven't even agreed on yet in metaphysics are you going to use? And he was like, oh, well, you know, I said, listen, isn't it interesting that you're using a word in a sentence? That's a key word. And you're using that to refute God's existence, although you don't really know the meaning of that word. And I said, and then so we had a conversation that awakened something within him. And then from what I remember, our discussion was, you know, what? he came from a secular background. He didn't really engage with salah, with engaging with the spiritual practice of Islam. He didn't really feel it. So his issue was primarily spiritual, psychodynamic or, you know, emotional rather than intellectual. Although the first instance in engaging with me was based on some kind of pseudo intellectual rebuttal. But when you scratch the surface, it's emotions and experience. Then, right.
0: It was almost like a shield sometimes. Ah. Yeah. So the second yeah. category, Sidi Hamza, that I've noticed is let's call it the scientific or the research based category. Yeah. Right. So these are individuals that say, look, I have more trust and security in the scientific worldview as it describes reality, right? In other words, I feel more confident in empiricism and that the only things we can really know has to be validated by, you know, the instrumentation of science today. Um, And this is obviously an acceptance of a philosophical premise, as, as we will also discuss, and this idea that even if there's still a mystery to science, right, which there always is, um, I just like that framework more. And I actually remember having a discussion with, you know, a, a very smart man. He was in his 60s uh, or, or, or late 60s. And him and I, you know, we talked things out for a couple of hours. And at the end, he's an evolutionist, science, you know, all about science, all that stuff. Right. But in the end, he said, look, if I were to believe in any religion, it would be Islam. But I just fancy the evolutionary scientific worldview. I just feel more comfortable with that. Even though everything, the way you're describing it, like I can totally see how that would work, right? But it just so happens that this is more convenient or more familiar or more comfortable for me, right? So some people have that kind of attitude. Others just see science as the new God or the new religion, right? So Universities are the new temples, scientists are the new priesthood, uh, and so on and so forth. There's there's all kind of the same, you know, levels of religion that you can even find there. Um, and so there is this idea that now what happens is the things that we would normally do theologically, like ascribe eternality or a type of, you know, majestic mystery and so on and so forth, it's now ascribed to the universe or nature or whatever you want to call it, right? All these powers of Allah are now given to Mother Nature, the universe, and yada yada. So there's still also, if you think about it, there are leaps of faith or fairy tale-like segments of even what's considered the scientific rational worldview and so on and so forth. So that's the second category that I've observed in my you know experiences. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Absolutely. I mean people adopt something called scientism, which is not really an academic position anymore. Scientism is the view that you you can only understand reality using the scientific method, or the scientific method is the only method to use to render truth about the world and reality. Now, that position itself is is, is a terrible position, because firstly, it's self-defeating. Your understanding of reality is through the scientific method. Then that statement you said that you believe to be true, which is the only way to find out the truth is through the scientific method can't be proven with the use of the scientific method. So it's self-defeating. Also, what's very important to understand is that, you know, what do you mean by reality? Because, you know, there's a hell of a lot of things in reality. For example, you have things like moral truths and you have things like mathematical and logical truths. And these things don't really, you know, that science doesn't really have have a foot in the door when you talk about these aspects. So for example, science, is what you'd call amoral or morally neutral. Now, what I mean by that is, it's not that science can't provide some data for us to basically use to inform our moral judgments. It can. What I'm saying is, if you believe in moral realism, that there are some some objective moral truths, like killing you know, killing someone or murdering someone or stealing, right? if you believe these are objective from the point of view that outside of your limited mind and human emotions, they require some kind of ontological grounding, some kind of rational foundation. Science can't provide that. Now, if you put natural selection of the, or the Darwinian mechanism as a foundation for objective moral truths, then you can't have it. just doesn't work. Why? Because, you know, what does the Darwinian mechanism basically say? It's all about survival and it's all about the way we've been reared. And as Darwin himself said, if we're reared under precisely the same conditions as, as the hive bees we would think it's okay to kill our fertile daughters, right? <laughs> now, if you extend that to the nurse shark, then, you know, one would argue that, you know, if we were reared under precisely the same conditions as the nurse shark, then we would think it's okay to rape women because the nurse shark, according to the National Geographic, you know, bites the fin of its mate and wrestles with its mate. So it shows that, you know, you can't have, this can't be a foundation for objective moral truth because morality, from that point of view, is contingent, dependent on inevitable biological changes and morality loses its meaning anyway and you can't say natural selection provides any kind of foundation because as philip kitcher the, the the ethicist said you know all that natural selection can do is not provide a foundation for objective moral truth but give you the kind of ability to formulate truth moral truth in a different story from that point of view so from that point of view science is is morally neutral also science can't deal with other sources of knowledge because we have other fundamental sources of knowledge like testimony. Like if you study Western philosophy, even Eastern philosophy, you see something called the epistemology of testimony. You know, how we get knowledge from the say so of others. This is a this has been revived in Western philosophy in the past 30 years. Fine, it hasn't trickled down to popular culture, but you know, if you analyze a lot of the things that we think are true, they're not based on any scientific data. It's based on literally the say so of others. For example, I had a debate with Professor Lawrence Krauss, and I said to him, he has a metaphysical presupposition that everything is true if you can if you can see it, if you can observe it. Right. Said, yes, I'm just a scientist. I said, but there are other sources of knowledge. And, and he said, like what? And I said, like testimony. Then he almost sniggered at me. I said, Look, listen to this. I said, Do you believe in evolution? He said, Yes. But have you done all the science yourself? No. Was
0: it all observable since the primordial soup till now? No, and it never will be.
1: But not only that, the science has become so complex and so multifaceted that he has to basically believe in the say-so of others, other scientists and other scientific experiments that he hasn't done himself. So testimony is fundamental from that point of view. And I suggest the listeners to read the works of Professor Cody. He wrote a book called Testimony of Philosophical... Discussion or a philosophical study, and he talks about how testimony is not just useful, as David Hume would say, but it is fundamental. Now, David Hume would say, Well, testimony is very important for knowledge because it, you know we need it, it's, it's indispensable. However, we only believe in testimonial knowledge because it agrees with our collective experiences. But Professor Cody says, Hold on a second, what do you mean by our collective experiences? How do you know? Our collective experience. Mm. It's not through your individual experience. It's through the say so of others, which shows that that testimony is fundamental. And you know, think about the supposition that the world is spherical. That's actually nothing to do with science for many of us. It's to do with testimony, because no one's done the mathematics themselves. No one's done the science. You know, the images they see. Are testimonial in nature because you have someone has to say to you, this is an image on Earth, right? You know, all the say so, you know, the, the stories that they've heard about, you know, rockets going to the moon and someone seeing down and looking at the earth like it's spherical, they didn't do that themselves. It's testimonial knowledge. And I've done this challenge quite a few times to people, and they're like, Oh my god, you're right. It's testimonial. Or, or
0: something as simple as Yelp reviews for restaurants.
1: <laughs> I mean, think about it. We
0: make so many decisions based on other people's testimonies and reviews of things, right? We trust in that,
1: you know? Now, this is not to say that testimony is always perfect. Of course not. But no, it's local data. You could be wrong with your with your senses as well. Of course. And that's a big discussion from Professor Keith Lehrer when he talks about trust in testimony. You have Dr. Elizabeth Fricker, Benjamin McMillan. But the point is, it's a massive discussion. So, coming back to the point, you know, there are other sources of knowledge, right? It's not just science as as, as a key method, there there is testimonial knowledge. Also, science is limited from the point of view that, you know, you need logical truths, right, and mathematical truths before you could do any science, right? So the point is, it's not true that science is the only way to, you know, understand the world and reality, because you have other truths in reality that science has no say, such as logical truths, deductive logic, you know, know, how, how we make inferences, mathematical truths, and all of that is required before you do any science. What about even the concept of causality? If you look into the philosophy of science, you see that science has first principles that we discussed earlier, or assumptions. These assumptions cannot be proven by science, but they're required in order for science to flourish so one of them include that you have external causal connections now i'm not talking about the nature of the causal link that's a deep philosophical study but they have to adopt a kind of common sense notion that there are external causal connections right. now how can you prove that there is a connection all you can prove is there is something happening then something else happens right now you can't prove the causal connection itself that's a metaphysical philosophical inquiry so the point is, but science has to adopt a version of that in order for science to work. So then there's so much more to say, but the point is the whole scientism thing is actually uh, a force, and it's not even respected in academia anyway. But coming just to the point that you mentioned a little bit earlier, or the thing that was being assumed in your in your point, which is fine, science can make us understand, or is a great method to make us understand you know, the world and reality. So what, how does that affect religion? How does that affect existential moral truths, you know, theophilosophical truths? How does that really, you know, affect religion in any way? And sometimes I feel that this whole science debate is overplayed in my view. Because if all, we we could solve this debate by understanding the philosophy of science. Take for example, the big debate between the scientific realists and the anti-realists. So the scientific realists, they basically said that well-confirmed scientific theories are representations of the actual state of affairs. In, a, in, in, in other words, scientific theories, well-confirmed scientific theories, represent truth, the reality. Now the anti realist said, no, this is not true. They said that well-confirmed scientific theories are approximations of the state of affairs. They're approximations of what truth is. Now they've been debating this for many years and they both agree that scientific, well-confirmed scientific theories can still change, right? There's nothing, did you know, there's nothing absolutely true about mm. these kinds of scientific theories. Even Richard Dawkins, the kind of evangelical academic concerning a Darwinian mechanism, I think in The Devil's Chaplain, he basically says, in a few years time, we may get some data that we may just see, because we don't have all the data, we don't have all the observations, that can totally undermine the Darwinian mechanism. It could look right. something totally different in a few years time. And that's the beauty of science. It's supposed to be in flux. It's supposed to be in change. So when you study something like the problem of induction, for example, you know, induction is a thinking process where you have limited set of data and you conclude for the next unobserved observation or you, for, for, or, or, or you conclude for the entire set of observations. You move from the known to the unknown. For example, if I'm in Wales in the UK and I observe a thousand white sheep, then I can conclude that the next observation of sheep is going to be white. Right? now, that's not deductively true. It's probabilistic because the next observation, it could be a black sheep. And this is the problem of induction because you can't say that your conclusion is absolute or your conclusion will is necessarily follows. It's probabilistic. The next observation of sheep may be white. That's the point. So, and science is fundamentally based on this. So science may give us something different. And that for me is one of the blessings and beauties of science Because, you know, we flow, because we may have new information, new data, and we change our conclusions. Now, if someone thinks science is static and everything we know today is absolutely true and it will never change, that's not really a scientific conclusion. As um, Hugh Goach, the academic who wrote the, the book Scientific Method in Brief, he said to claim that science leads to atheism is to get high marks for enthusiasm and low marks for logic. Right, so (laughs) I've I've, I've detailed this too much, but you know, I I spent a chapter of my book actually discussing these points in detail on the four key assumptions that some atheists use when they claim that science leads to atheism. It's like they're false assumptions, and one of them is scientism itself. Thank you for that, Hamza. So, going back
0: to the two categories here, so I start off by saying often one of the big reasons why people become atheists because this emotional displacement. Trauma, abuse, very difficult experiences in life, i.e., in short, the problem of evil, right, is the cause for atheism. The second is scientism or putting too much trust and security in science, which, as you described and gave us some examples, is not static. It's ever-evolving, and it's an instrument or a language to understand reality, but it doesn't, it's not the end-all, be-all. Right. Just like saying music is the end all be all of all art. We know there are different forms of exchanging messages and meaning and and so on and so forth. Right. Um, So the other two categories that I've observed, which I just want to share the third type, which I've also observed and I'd say is more unique to internally within the religious community is some type of religious uh, abuse or trauma or a deep religious ignorance. So, for example, a person could have been, you know, exposed or traumatized by very unhealthy, imbalanced, irrational religious institutions, religious culture in one's family or community. This can certainly leave a person saying, I'm throwing the baby out with the bathwater. This is, they're all, it's all in the name of this religion. And so I must, you know, conclude then that religion is the problem. And, of course, there is a whole spectrum of that, right, from violence, uh, trauma, abuse, etc., And then I would also say that part of that category is people who are just highly misinformed or ignorant about the religion, right? So, for example, some people that, you know, may have come with doubts and they're like, yeah, I don't know if I believe in Islam or this or that or the sunnah, that or whatever. I say, look, brother, can you translate the Fatiha? Just translate the Fatiha for me. Like, tell me what each word really means. And they can't do it. So I'm like, so you're already claiming this is not the book of Allah. This is this, this is that. And you don't even know something that every Muslim should know at least, right? So this is that whole point of, of course, you can't see the nur or the light of something if you're more in the dark than aware of that subject or that matter. So that's another thing that we also find is people don't necessarily have enough knowledge. And, And that could also mean a person who grew up in a like a you know conventional good muslim family so to speak and they got the basics and all that stuff but they haven't really graduated past Sunday school islam right so of course you're not going to be able to tackle these sophisticated ideas and arguments when you hit university and on top of that there's this whole social freedom that's happening around you and you don't you you haven't been able to reconcile society ethics morality theology you know with all the stuff going on so it can be a very confusing and difficult time, especially for young Muslim adults who are trying to find their identity and individuate you know, through the thick of all this, right? And then the last category I would say, and feel free to add some of your own, is what I call the Iblisi category, that of Iblis, you know, or personal entitlement, right? So this right. is basically arrogance, you know? It's just straight up, look, some people believe or they're like, look, I get that. Like I had a person once tell me, Look, man, I know there's a God and I know, you know, there's probably a true right religion and all that stuff, but I'm mad at God because of the way he set everything up. I don't like it. Just this arrogance, right? I don't like the way things are. And I wish he did it differently. And and this is my rebellion, which is literally one of the meanings of uh, shaitan or shatana, right? To rebel or go against. So this is also another category. And of course, Iblis is the archetype of this. And so it's kind of like this idea of, you know, I don't like how all this works out. Will, universal will, destiny, you know, suffering, why we have to have tests and whatever, and all that stuff. Some people are just rejected out of spite, and some people are like, I get it, but I just don't want to accept it. So, those are the four categories, Sidi Hamza, that I've
1: observed. Allah, Allah bless you for this. This is very insightful. I mean, there is a subcategory, I guess, from the Iblisi category, is, you know, the Miso theists. But Professor Bernard Schweizer, he talks about this in his book called Hating God, The Untold Story of Mesotheism, published by Cambridge. Oh. I mean, my wife said this book needs to get out of the house. She didn't want it in the house. That's how bad that book is. Because what Professor Bernard Schweizer does, he collects literatures, statements from literatures in, in from Europe throughout the centuries. And he collects statements that really indicate that the main problem for some of these people wasn't that they denied a creator, but they just hated God. And he does admit that the initial motivation for these people was that they had a humanistic impulse. They were like, well, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world, as you mentioned? But what happened? They moved away from the humanistic impulse because maybe they're not connected spiritually or even intellectually. And it transformed into an egocentrism. Meaning that they thought God had to see things the way they saw things. Right. And the only way to understand evil and suffering is they were, the way they've understood it and the way they experienced it. And this all relates to the nafs and the ego. Because what's the nature of the ego? I always want to be right. I never want to be wrong. <laughs> I always want to impose. I never want to be imposed upon. I always want to look good. I never want to look bad. And I want we to be that, comfortable. I want pleasure. All yeah, that stuff. Yeah. this is Right? When Allah says to bad to Adam, Alayhi salam, shaytan is like No, i am fire his claim I'm not going to be imposed upon I'm imposing I'm right God's wrong I'm going to look good Everyone else is going to look bad Right? And these are the traits And this is why One scholar once said to me That the cause of kufa, The cause of Actively rejecting the truth And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Is based on Kibur Arrogance Ego And Hawa And desire mm. So there is that element There is that element in there that, you know, some people are just like, you know, and that's why sometimes I, I, you know, it's good to ask atheists when you're having a, hopefully a compassionate discourse with them. If God did exist, hypothetically, would you worship him? And sometimes they say no. And this reminds me of uh, the late Christopher Hitchens. He said, I'm not an atheist. I'm I'm an anti-theist. Like, even if God did exist, I would reject him because, like, living under North Korea. Right? That's what he said. Wow. The point here, here for me, there are there are, there are are a lot of kind of ego, egocentric, egotistical problems going on. Because if God exists for someone, then that should not awaken within them a huge sense of gratitude and shukr and, and praise is the key to worship, right? That's what we're saying in the first line of uh, Surah Al-Fatiha. Alhamdulillahi <laughs> Rabbil All perfect gratitude and praise belongs to to the Lord of everything that exists. This is the key to Ibadah. This is the key to worship. And, you know, when someone understands as the creator of the universe, what does this do to them? Well, they understand this creator now deserves worship from the point of view of this creator deserves praise, not by virtue of my blessings that I've been given in life, but by virtue of who this creator is, by virtue of his names and attributes. Because if you can create this entire universe, then it follows he deserves praise. Because if I can praise some mischeme contingent rearrangement of carbon, right? Like a scientist or a human being with some skills, and I give them praise by virtue of their attributes, and their attributes are limited and flawed in some way, then it just follows necessarily that Allah, God deserves excessive form of praise by virtue of who he is, because his names and attributes are perfect without any deficiency and flaw. So, you know, that aspect of praise should come through. Also, gratitude. You know, if you believe there is a creator for the universe and the creator created you, then what does this do to you? Well, this makes you realize that, well, the most priceless gift I have is the gift of life, every conscious moment of my existence. But I don't earn another moment of my life. I don't own my life. I couldn't create life. I couldn't even create a fly. So if it's true that Allah, God is giving you something freely that is priceless, right? At every moment of your existence that you don't earn, own or deserve, then how should that make you feel? That should make you feel grateful, right? right. So from this point of view, the whole kibar, the ego thing prevents you from understanding that Allah is worthy of praise and that Allah is worthy of gratitude. If you don't have that, then guidance, is, the light of guidance won't penetrate. Because, right. you know, ego is a barrier to divine mercy and guidance. Totally.
0: No, and I love that theme because it's certainly a very powerful mechanism for any human transformation and certainly, you know, the work I do. And I want to add some comments on that. So the importance of gratitude and what reminds me of one of my favorite verses in the Quran of Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, uh, فَاذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرُكُمْ وَاشْكُرُونِي وَلَا تَكْفَرُونِ That's very interesting that number one, Allah says, remember me and I'll remember you, which gives me goosebumps every time I say it because it's like the supreme consciousness, the creator of everything is saying, I'll remember you and you remember me, which is, you know, and and remembrance is something that we already know, but we're re-engaging with it in that particular moment, right? Because of course, it's not like Allah ever forgets you. In fact, I always say to people, Hamza, to also kind of bring in this sense of meaning and gratitude of, well, if Allah is who He is, and of course it takes a lifetime to start to wrap your head around this reality, right? But it should when you start to taste it, you should feel that, you know, numinosity, that majesty, that beauty that just overwhelms you, right? And so when you're not tapping into that, you're not you're not even getting close to what you're supposed to start understanding, right? let alone that you ever will. But this idea that if Allah's knowledge is absolute and unchanging, therefore, He knew you and me would have this conversation before He created anything. We were always in the knowledge of Allah, right? Or in other words, we've always been on His mind, so to speak. Because it's not like He he never knew I wasn't going to exist or you weren't going to exist. So in a sense, we were always with Allah too, in his knowledge, and then, of course, in the spiritual form before we came into the human bodies, etc. Um, and then, of course, this idea of gratitude of, so I feel like the atheists have that difficulty sometimes with, you know, tapping into that sense of the weightiness or um, profound majesty of what we're actually talking about here. We're not talking about the spaghetti monster in the sky or a bearded man or anything with nine arms or whatever, right? It's like this is, it's a whole other category, uh, Islamic notion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but I also want to bring it to today we also find the ph- a phenomena with our brothers and sisters in the ummah where there's this idea of look I like Islam I want to be a good Muslim but I'm just going to be good to people and like that should kind of do the trick and you know I always use this analogy which I think is connected to your gratitude point here which is look if Allah is who he is and he is telling you and me this is good for you, and this is how you approach my relationship with you. Number one, if you had a wife or a husband or someone you really loved and cared about, a best friend even, right? If there's no communication with that person, you know, you never call them or text them or ask about them, Eid Mubarak, nothing, right? They're in the hospital, you don't ask about them. Does your friendship really have any substance? Yeah, so, so what about you, you don't go step into conversation and connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? When he tells you, this is for you to come and have this space with me, right? He's giving you your own private meeting. We will always honor the role, like you said, of scientist, our manager at the company. If he says, you're here at 7 a.m. on Saturday, we respect that and we obey, right? When it comes to Allah, oh, I don't know about this, I don't know this. So this idea of being grateful or being a good person while ignoring the very framework or practices that Allah and His Messenger have assigned to us, I see it as like, it's the same thing as you take the analogy, and I know you like uh, analogies, use a lot in your book. Let's say I own a gorgeous uh, apartment building in New York City, and everyone wants to live there, and I'm just loaded with money, and I say, look, I'm going to get 100 people, applications, you guys can all come, and I'm, you're going to live here for free. This is my sadaqah to the planet, right? So you got this community living in this gorgeous New York apartment building, and the they've never met me, the owner, let's say, right? But in the apartment, there's notices about who the owner is, where you can find them, and uh, you know, as a response to this gift that I'm giving you, this apartment building and life and all these wonderful amenities, all for free, all we ask is that five times a day or once a day, you go to the roof and you do X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, right? And these tenants... It's the people who ignore that notice and say, well, that's nice, but I don't care. I'm just going to enjoy this. In fact, to compensate me ignoring the owner of the building and the one who's given me all this free gift, i.e. life, existence, consciousness, I'm just going to be really good to all the other tenants and neighbors. And that will satisfy my, you know, compensation for getting all of this. It's kind of like that. Right, It's like you're ignoring the one who actually gave you everything and is allowing you to have the comfort and the decision and the will to say I'm going to actually ignore you and just be nice and good according to my own terms with the people around me. What do you think about that? And do you feel like it sheds light on one of the problems we also find, let's say, within our Muslim community?
1: I mean, we need to be more God-centric, right? Because if you really think about it, saying oh, I'm just going to be good to others, that exposes some kind of spiritual presupposition that you think now you've become the yardstick on what is right now. And you've become the kind of yardstick of what you think is going to give you salvation. And that for me is like, you know, maybe an expression of a God complex or some kind of ego problem. At the end of the day, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created you, then he knows you, but then you know yourself, right? Allah knows Hamza, but then Hamza knows Hamza, right? And Allah is saying, this is good for you. And not only this, Allah has more mercy for Hamza than Hamza has mercy for Hamza, right? So from this point of view, we need to understand that, you know, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that he has given you this path to follow, this path to traverse, if we don't follow it, it's like basically not only rejecting, it's not only the most ridiculous thing to do, but you're rejecting the all-knowing, the all-wise. You no, know, Allah is al-Hakim. He is the 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 He has the totality of knowledge and wisdom. He has the picture. We just have the pixel. We have a pixelated understanding of ourselves and reality. And the one who knows all, and the one who's ar rahman he's the intensely lovingly merciful. He is al wudud coming from the word wood, which means the loving that is giving. Allah is the loving. This being. Whose names and attributes are maximally perfect; they have no deficiency and flaw. He is saying, "Follow, traverse this path." And for you not to traverse that path, I think it's the height of arrogance. It's it's ghafla. It's heedlessness. And, you know, may Allah protect us all because sometimes I mean, I mean. We're, we're all off that path as yeah, well. We have to find exactly. each other to be back on that path. And, you know, it's like you I always mention this sometimes, and I think I mentioned in the book where. You know, if the pilot says to you, sit down, there's gonna be turbulence. Right. You you sit down and you buckle up. You don't now say, what does he know? I'm gonna do a moonwalk on the aisle. (laughs) Because, you know, we submit to high authorities all the time. Exactly. We go to a doctor. Like, you know, Dr. Elizabeth Fricker, she's an epistemologist, she makes a beautiful point. She says, given my limitations as parametric, I have to basically submit to the authority of others. It happens all the time. All the time. But who are these authorities in front of Allah? That's the point, nothing. There's no comparison. So the point is, you know, your analogies are fantastic. absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah,
0: nobody would accept ignoring the CEO of Apple or, you know, Google. If you work there, if they're like, I want you in my office. Again, it's like, subhanAllah, how we are sometimes deluded by our own, you know, approach to things. It's like when it comes to our deen. We're not going to do that, but when it comes to everything else in the dunya we submit like really good servants you know wow. so it's just a reminder for everybody that you know we have to really check ourselves before we wreck ourselves as we used to say in the 90s <laughs> your brother Hamza I was hoping that we could also now um, maybe discuss I know there's a lot in your book and again I recommend everybody to read it but I wanted to say let's say for people out there that are listening and this is kind of the first time they're really dabbling into this uh, topic. I would love for you to share with us, what would you say are the at least two or three of the best arguments from a Muslim standpoint to help us increase in our conviction, awareness, or at minimum our curiosity for the existence of Allah ﷻ. And there are several positions, there's the position of fitra. there's teleological, cosmological, the moral, even the mystical, Uh, There's different, you know, positions. So in your opinion, what would you say are at least two or three of the best ones that you believe every Muslim who's serious should be aware
1: of and recognize the strength of? Good question. I mean, the context behind this is firstly understanding what the human being is. Because sometimes we address this whole notion of God's existence in fundamentally the wrong way. If we're talking to a computer or a computerized functional model of what it means to be a human, inputs and outputs. That's not the human being. The human being has a qalb, has a heart, has an aql and many ulema say the aql, the intellect is a function of the qalb, it's a function of the heart. You have the ruh, you have the, the soul, the spirit, you have the fitra. some ulama even say the fitrah is within the ruh. you know. So all of these things, so the human being is very dynamic from that point of view. So when we focus in on the fitra, which is the innate disposition, the primordial state, this fitra has a form of proto-knowledge, primary knowledge, which is fundamentally based on two things. That Allah exists and He deserves praise or, or a form of worship. Now as per the hadith in Sahih Muslim, over time and because of socialization and parenting, basically the fitra becomes clouded. So our job when we give arguments is to understand that these rational arguments are not ends, they're just means to uncloud the fitrah, to awaken the truth within. Right. And, and sometimes rational arguments won't work. Correct. It might be mystical or experiential. Emotional,
0: or relational.
1: Or emotional, or just buying someone a pizza or a couple of donuts, right? Right. You never know what's going to awaken the fitra. And there are many evidences in the Quran to indicate this, you know, for example, the mushrikeen on the boat, when there are massive clouds, uh, cl- waves the size of clouds coming, they supplicate to Allah. So that negative or positive experience can awaken the truth within, so they can remember Allah and understand what's within themselves. Can I just, yeah. I
0: just want to add a point to that feature real quick because, from a human science standpoint. You know, what you're also saying here is very important. This idea, it's almost like I'm hearing you say you got to tap into the deeper human heartfelt element. So why is it that buying a pizza or a couple of donuts or smiling, being kind to someone, you know, you see someone on the side of the road and you pull over and you're like, hey, are you okay? Do you need help? I've noticed that these experiences, what it does is it kind of, it sometimes makes the person realize that, oh yeah, we're all part of the same family. It's like you tap into that deeper homecoming or that familiar familial connection. It's like, I don't see your color right now or your gender or your age or whatever beliefs you have or whatever you've done in your life. What matters is I just see you as a human being and I'm going to give you something fundamental to demonstrate that you deserve honor and have value, right? Whether it's feeding someone or helping them. So this is also, I think, another way to understand what you mean here by how do we Reignite or unveil that to make it
1: fitra to fitra kind of thing. Would you say that's a good way to supplement? Understanding this as the, as as our kind of first principle, if you like, is important in the way we use the arguments. Because in the book, I could have went much more deep in more detail concerning consciousness and talk about the phenomenal phenomenal concept strategy, which is very deep and you could hardly find it online, right? But I didn't do that because I was thinking, what is the kind of limit of philosophy, if you like? What's the limit of abstract rational arguments? And there is a limit. And this is why, for example, when I discuss with an atheist and they'll give me some shubahat or some you know, crazy question, sometimes I don't even answer it because I know if they have to go there, then there's something else going on. Let me give an example to understand this. Take the design argument as an example. I think the modern version of the design argument is very intuitive, very powerful. But some atheists would say, but there could still be a chance. If they respond that way, I now know that this has nothing to do with intellectual arguments. Tell us the
0: design argument real quick for those who don't
1: know. For example, you know, there is a life-sensitive set of physical laws and there's a life-sensitive arrangement of celestial objects and the structure of the universe in order to permit complex conscious life. If those life sensitive set of laws were not in place, or if the life sensitive arrangement and structure of the universe wasn't the way that it is, it would be very unlikely to have complex conscious life. That's a summary of the argument. Now there are some contentions. One contention is chance, and you deal with the chance, and then they say, but there could still be a chance if they say this, then we need to be intellectually and spiritually mature you don't have to go into the difference between mathematical probability and epistemic probability and go on, go into all these crazy things. Sometimes you may have to, but depending on the person, sometimes you don't. Why? Because if someone still has this doubt or this kind of contention, then you have to understand that there is something psychodynamic and spiritual, spiritual going on, not intellectual. Why? Because for that atheist, the epistemic, the bar of knowledge for everything in their life, marriage, buying a car, getting a house, academia, everything. If the bar for knowledge is here, but when it comes to God, it's all the way here. Why? Why are there inconsistency? For everything, your epistemic bar is all the way here. Banking, life, money, friends, the works. But when it comes to God, it's all the way up here. For me, this inconsistency shows that something else is going on. It could be arrogance, it could be ego, it could be negative experiences. And that's why we have to be more intellectually and spiritually mature and actually listen to people with the intention to understand. Because sometimes I see Muslims debating with John the Atheist about cosmology. Really, John's problem is not cosmology. John's problem is his mom passed away when he was three. Right. And he was so arrogant. As Muslims, sometimes we could be arrogant. True. We had no humility. And we were giving da'wah, we were engaging and outreaching to our judgments of John and not who John truly is. This is why the whole point of the fitrah and that first principle of framework allows us to understand that it's not just rational arguments. Other things can awaken the truth within as well. So if you're going to use the design argument, use it. If you're going to use the argument from consciousness, use it. If you're going to use the powerful contingency or dependency argument, use it. However, when you use it, understand the backdrop, the first principle here, that you're talking to a human being, not a robot, and you don't have to answer all the questions. In actual fact, only an idiot answers all the questions, right? No. Allah. Allah doesn't answer all the questions. Allah gives us questions, and the answers imply to teach us that if you ask the right questions, it would inevitably lead to the right answers. For example, I mentioned the Quranic argument for God's existence, which is the universal argument as well. In chapter 52, verse 35 to 36, did you come from nothing? Did you create yourself? Did you create the heavens and the earth? Indeed, you have no certainty. Allah doesn't say, therefore a creator exists per se, but he's giving us this kind of Quranic method of dialogue. Some would argue it's Socratic method, but it's the Quranic method, right? Ask the right questions, and it will inevitably lead you to the right answers if you're sincere. So the point here is, if we understand this model really well, then when we learn any argument, which arguments are easy to learn, when you learn these arguments, you, 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 you're able to apply them in a certain context. And this is very, very powerful because then you'd be intellectually and spiritually mature to say, right, based on the questions that I'm getting now, this person needs something else. This person needs maybe a spiritual experience. How many Muslims do we know, bro? They have all their intellectual arguments. Or well, how many non-Muslims do we know? They have all the intellectual arguments and yet they don't become Muslim. What makes them Muslim is when they do sajda, when they connect, right. it happened to me. I thought I knew God exists when I was 22 years old. I thought the Quran was a linguistic miracle at 22 years old, but I didn't become a Muslim. What made me become a Muslim was I used to pray. I learned how to do wudu and I used to do sajda. I remember my friend who would say for a Muslim, he is closest to his Lord in prostration. Right, and I used to say to Allah, God, what's going on? Help me out, right? <laughs> right. That connection. So human beings are, are, are holistic. We understand the first principle of the fitra. These are arguments that we learn, which are very easy in essence, you know, we could use them appropriately and understand that there are just means to awaken the truth within, rather than they're not ends in themselves. And the problematic discourse that's been happening, especially online is that Muslims think, you know, intellectual arguments are the ends. No, they
0: no, not. Yeah. yeah, and you're absolutely right, because, uh, like you said, Islam's, even their practices, right, there is a psycho-emotional, somatic, spiritual, it's it's all there. It's not, you know, and the early Muslims were not philosophers and arguing with the thinkers of Persia and, and Greece, you know, this isn't what was happening, right? They, um... I mean some people became muslim just from seeing another person's face and seeing like I've I've met people who are just like bro I became muslim cuz I when I saw this teacher or this person for the first time in my life I understood what a human being is supposed to be just by seeing this person yani there are mechanisms and messages and noor that is not just about intellectual philosophical you know discussions which is the point you're making here is there's more to it than just that and these you know mental gymnastics and you know battles. And certainly sometimes you know people of faith can fall under this trap of if I can prove them wrong, no matter what, which blinds me to the actual you know connection I'm having with this person, then somehow it affirms and, and validates my own faith. And so I'm really doing it still for me. I'm not doing it for Allah at this point. Because if I'm doing something for Allah, I can put my needs or wants or Attached uh, outcomes aside, right? Which isn't was such is something as you know, I'm sure you know better. Uh, any da'i, novice dairy has to learn at some point, right? It's not just about like, you know, watch this, right? And everyone's right. gonna clap, kind of thing, right? You know, so you really feel that the fitra is the best place to work from, in your opinion.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't even quote an argument. It is it is the necessary lenses that Muslims have to put on their eyes. In order now to understand the arguments and how to use the arguments. Because if you don't start from that premise, it's going to be very problematic in the way you engage with others. And that's why I put it in the beginning of the chapter when I talk about self evident truths. In a couple of paragraphs, I mention all of this stuff there in order for people to understand the rest of the arguments in, in the book. And then when they learn the arguments, which, you know, they're very cool, they're brilliant, they're based on our Islamic intellectual tradition as well. And they're also very universal, you know, other theologians from other traditions use similar arguments too. But what I tried doing in the book, and there's around 600 references, that at least 50% of the references in the book is Quran, hadith, or a statement of the scholar to show that we do have an intellectual tradition as well, that we could make contemporary and make people understand, you know, know, how to navigate this intellectual and spiritual space. But the reason I focus on this a lot, what I've just mentioned concerning the fitrah, because I think that the necessary lenses that, that we need to put on our eyes in order to understand the arguments and how to use them. Because if we don't have that understanding, all we're going to be doing is thinking, I need to answer all the questions. I need to get it right. It has to be a waterproof argument, blah, 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 blah. And then all you do is you just become a robot. <laughs> you just become kind of computerized functional thing. Right? sort what... of
0: cyborg.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or a zombie. Yeah, And then the, uh, human beings are like that. We're human beings. We're not human doing.
0: Right, right. right. No, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, especially that's one of the things that I always, you know, live by or try to help others is like, look, this is about being human, the best human you can be. And I feel like when that's in place, many things will find healing, family relationships, you know, bridging uh, communities together and discussions, etc. Right. Our healthcare, our education, all these things will have, you know, greater strength and value. So let's see here. Um, Okay, so that was uh, the Fitcher argument. Um, Do you feel like there are other arguments that's worthy of maybe summarizing right now for the audience, especially people who just, you know, they got no tools in their kit?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I think a really good argument is the argument from contingency, which is also known as, well, I refer to it as the argument from dependency, which is just another word because it's more of a colloquial understanding of the term you know contingency sounds very intellectual right so this argument is very good because i don't know if you the way i've designed the book i tried to make the book as credo neutral as possible so obviously in the islamic tradition we have the asha'ira you have the maturidis you have the Athari creed as well so these three school of three school of creeds they have overlaps but they have some differences too I didn't want to write a book that was a representation of just one, uh, one, one type of school, if you like, yeah? Because, you know, our job is to call to Allah, our job is not to call to our our perspectives. And in the grand scheme of things, especially in our current contemporary context, I wanted to make it as pre-mutual as possible. Obviously, when it comes to the arguments like the moral argument, you know, the Maturidis and the Atharis would like it more than the Asha'ira, the Asha'ira wouldn't really appreciate the way I've dealt with the kind of um, the divine command theory, you know, it's more of a modern version, which the Maturidis might appreciate and so would the Atharis, but the Ashara would say, okay, this is not, this is where we depart. You know, you're going to have certain positions, not a problem, but I did try and make it as pre to as possible. The reason I'm mentioning this is because the argument from dependency is one of the arguments that all the creeds talk about. Even the, the Athari school and even the Maturidis and the Ashara, they talk about the argument from contingency, the fact that Allah is necessary existing, right? Mm-hmm. So how does, what, what's the argument? The argument is very simple, is that the universe and everything that we perceive is not necessary. Now, to understand what not necessary means, you have to understand what in philosophy necessary means. Now in philosophy, necessary means that it was impossible for it to have not existed. Hmm. that's what necessary means so something that is so that's what necessary means so if something is necessary it is impossible for it to have not existed right. therefore it doesn't have an explanation outside of itself okay so the universe and everything that exists within it is not necessary which means it was possible for it to have not existed. So, therefore, it requires an explanation outside of itself. Now, that explanation could be something that is necessary or not necessary. If that explanation is not necessary, then we have another problem because you have to explain that thing that is not necessary. So, fundamentally and ultimately, the universe is explained by something that is necessary. Now, in the book, I detail it by talking about everything in the universe, and the universe itself is dependent, and I describe what dependent means. Number one, it means that it's not necessary. Number two, it means that its fundamental building blocks could have been arranged in a different way. Hmm. For example, this bottle. The bottle, say, has some certain fundamental building blocks. You could call them atoms, quarks, or you can go a little bit further up uh, and say it's the main bottle and it's the, the, the what do you call this? The lid. Top. The lid. Yeah. It's, it's late for me <laughs> so it's the lid, right? So you know, this is arranged in a particular way. There is nothing necessary about this arrangement. It could have been arranged in a different way, and if that's the case, there must have been an explanation for why this arrangement is the way that it is so and so this- on that point, Hamza, you're saying this
0: this bottle or this mug it this could have been black. It could have been made of wood. It could have been made of steel. It could also have coffee in it, water, juice, nothing. There's You're talking about the, the infinite possibilities that could exist based on what we know and that because something takes a particular form with certain properties suggests that there must have been some kind of execution process for it to be this mug or that bottle the way it is or this universe
1: the way it is. Yeah, so for example... You know, one would argue that there needs to be an external set of factors or an external explanation that explains why that arrangement or not not another arrangement. Take, for example, if I was driving and I saw a roundabout and on the roundabout, there was grass with arrangement of flowers and the arrangement of flowers says, I love you. Now, I don't look at that arrangement of flowers and say, hey, that arrangement necessarily exists. No, it's contingent, it's dependent because it didn't have to be there. It could have been an arrangement of flowers that says, I like you, not I love you or I adore you. So there must be an external set of circumstances or something that explains that particular arrangement. It could be as mundane as a gust of wind, but that's still an explanation external to the arrangement of flowers. The point is there requires to be an explanation because the mark of a rational mind questions that which didn't have to be. The mark of a rational mind questions that which didn't have to be. So one one defining aspect of something being dependent is that the fundamental building blocks of something is is arranged in a particular way, that arrangement is not necessary, it could have been arranged in another way, therefore there requires to be an external explanation. Also another defining feature of dependency, and we mentioned this earlier, but just to clarify, is that something is not necessary. For example if i go downstairs into the kitchen and i open the fridge and i see a pen on top of the egg box i don't close the fridge saying hey that pen and egg box necessarily exist in the fridge of course not because there's nothing necessary about their existence they could have not existed in actual fact the pen could have not been there the pen could have been in the egg box and not on top of the egg box in actual fact they didn't have to be an egg box there in the first place so That reality itself is saying to me, well, there is an explanation why the pen is on top of the egg box. Now, it could be the fact that my son put it there as a joke. It could be so many different reasons. But the point is, there requires to be an external explanation. Another defining feature of something being dependent or in other words, contingent, is that contingent things have limited physical qualities. And this is very important. Take this bottle. This bottle has limited physical qualities. There is a certain shape, color, smell, touch, temperature, texture. There's, there are limitations. So it's a certain volume, size, height, weight, etc. Now, this bottle didn't give rise to its own limitations. Therefore, there must have been an external explanation or external factors, external circumstance, or whatever the case may be that gave rise to those limitations. So since we now we now know what contingency means or dependency means, when we apply this to the universe and everything within it, we come to the conclusion that the universe is contingent. it's dependent. Now the, the universe and everything within it could be dependent on itself, which is impossible because the very nature of something being dependent is that there is an ex, that, that it's dependent because of something outside of itself. There needs to be an external explanation. So that doesn't work. Or the universe could be dependent on something else that's dependent. But if that happens, you have an infinite regress of dependencies, which is philosophically absurd. And one would argue it's not giving us an answer or an explanation in the first place. No. Because explaining something that requires an explanation is something else that requires an, an, an explanation in some kind of metaphysical sense. So what we conclude is that the universe must be dependent on something that is necessary and therefore independent. Now, this necessary and independent entity or being must be eternal. Why must it be eternal? Because if it's finite, it means it has limited physical qualities. So it has some kind of limitation, which makes right? it dependent, which makes it dependent because it require an explanation. Well, why did it begin? Why does it have these limitations? Right? So that's why it has to be eternal. Now, one would argue, well, the universe could be eternal. Fair enough. Say the universe was eternal it doesn't mean that it is now necessarily existing because philosophically speaking, you could have an eternal universe and it's still dependent. For example, here is this thought experiment. Imagine you had an infinite chain of human beings and every person in the, in the chain was responsible, came as a result of the biological activity of their parents and the whole chain of these human beings. Now, this human this chain is infinite it's eternal right one would argue well that doesn't mean the chain is necessarily exists because one could ask why is that human being like this and not like something else mm-hmm. right so the point here is you can have something that is eternal in a philosophical metaphysical understanding of the, of the term and it, it's still being dependent now this doesn't mean we believe that the universe is eternal no, because that would be, especially in the classical tradition, that would be something that could be a form of disbelief. But I'm just saying, even if someone were to, to entertain that, say, oh, okay, I'm clutching at intellectual straws, the universe is eternal, so it solves the problem, it doesn't. Because even if the universe was eternal, it, it doesn't mean that it necessarily exists. But if something necessarily exists, it must be eternal. But if something is eternal, it doesn't mean it necessarily exists, if you get the logic there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, for sure, there must be a necessary independent being that is eternal. This, is,
0: this is also the cosmological argument? It's a form of the cosmological okay. argument. Which is the unmoved mover or the uncaused cause idea?
1: Um, no, this is a little bit different. This is more of a kind of metaphysical um, conception that doesn't really go into causality per se. That would be more the kalam cosmological argument or the cosmological argument as conceived by Al-Ghazali or even uh, Ioannis Philoponus, the Greek philosopher. Now, the version that I use in in the book is the Quranic version of the cosmological argument, Mm -hmm. which when Allah says, and and, and it's universal anyway. I discuss in the book, you know, you don't even have to call it Quranic. It's just universal. But the reason I mention the Quran to show we have a strong intellectual tradition. So, you know, if the universe began, so you have to show that the universe began. Did it come from nothing? Did it create itself? Was it created by something else that was created? Or was it created by something uncreated? And This logic is based on chapter 52, verse 35 to 36. And this is a form of the cosmological argument. Now the argument I've just given you now, which is the argument from dependency or argument from contingency, you don't really have to prove the beginning of the universe. That's the
0: yeah. yeah, it's about understanding what's I, I, necessary what's unnecessary, what's possible, and what's impossible.
1: Yeah, it, it, it uses that type of language. And what's very interesting is, and when someone says, oh, this is God of the gaps, you don't know the science, and when we know the science, we're going to basically you know, understand the universe better. The beautiful thing about this argument, that's why I like to start with it, especially when I publicly express the book, the aspects of the book, is because this argument is metaphysical. You could bring any science... And it would never undermine this argument. And that's why I like this argument. Whereas the Kalam Cosmological argument, sometimes someone could bring, you know, new scientific cosmology. They may not like the mathematics or the philosophy that you're talking about concerning the finitude of the universe. And you have a bit of a debate there. However, when it comes to this argument, it's it's metaphysical. It's scientifically free. It transcends science. Because if you bring any science into the equation, all you're going to be giving me is something that is contingent or dependent. Because science, by its very nature, as we mentioned earlier, Professor Elliot Sober, he says that, you know, at any moment in time, scientists are restricted to the observations they have at hand. And when you have a scientific conclusion, it's going to be something you can observe directly or indirectly. Philosophically, by the very nature of that thing, it's going to be contingent because it's going to have limited physical qualities. And things that have limited physical qualities don't give rise to their own limitations. There must be an explanation for them. So if you bring any scientific explanation like the multiverse or anything, anything even in a thousand years time, it won't undermine this argument because all science can do is show you conclusions that are dependent in nature, Mm. not necessarily existing. So would you say most
0: scientists would actually accept this premise that the universe itself is unnecessary and it is limited and contingent in the way that you're describing, like the sun is a contingent entity because of the laws of you know astrophysics and energy and all those things is that how we would understand why you know this coffee mug is contingent and dependent and so is the sun for example
1: yeah i mean some scientists said that this universe didn't have to exist the way that it did we could have we could have had scientifically another universe with a different set of laws right right but it all works together absolutely so you know, I haven't heard a scientist say that this universe necessarily exists. And plus, scientists would even be humble. Many of them, you know, they're very humble, especially that the real academics. And they say, you know, this is philosophy. Let's do the science. They're very practical in nature. And that's why scientists, they don't even care about absolute truth. They care about things that work. That's why we still have, you know, Newtonian physics and quantum physics. You know, they, they have their own realm. They're the non-complementary paradigms. I haven't found really a link between the two. So then they, they can't say that, the, that, that Newtonian physics is absolutely true. They can't say quantum physics is absolutely true. But they're working in their own domain, and that's what they're concerned about, right? right. Because about practical matters, not these kind of philosophical metaphysical matters, right? So, you know, many good scientists stay in their lane. <laughs> you know, it's good to stay in your lane if you don't know your science, but it's also good to stay in your lane if you don't know your philosophy.
0: Right, right? of course. So fine. No, man, I appreciate it. Very... Uh... Very nice unpacking of the topics here. And uh, Sidi Hamza did promise he's going to come back on the show, guys, and uh, I will take him up on that. And I do want to um, come to our closing segment because I don't want to eat all the honey today. You know, someone gives you a jar of honey. I don't want to eat all of it today. You're being very generous with your time. Any final, you know, comments or words of advice that you'd like to give for your, you know, intro talk here? And inshallah, we'll continue. Uh, with regarding your book next
1: time. Yeah, I think it's very important to understand that when we do engage with atheists that, that you know we don't otherize them, right? Because mm-hmm. Allah al Imran, verse 113, people are not the same. And he refers to the Jews and the Christians, that there are upright people in those in those traditions. So you know we don't want to say that you know everybody is the same and that, that they are a monolith. You know, this is otherization, this is the basis of extremism in my view, right? So we have to be careful. Secondly, when we are articulating these arguments, we have to understand that these are the stepping stones to making people aware and uh, awaken within themselves that Allah is worthy of worship. What does worship mean? And I discuss this in the book. It entails that you know Allah, that you love Allah, that you obey Allah, which includes humility, and that you direct all acts of worship to Allah alone, like your dhikr and your salah and stuff like this. So from that point of view, you know, we have to understand that these arguments are there to create that awareness because that is for me, in, in my humble opinion, the strategy of the Quran to take you from the divine wisdom and creative power of the creator to conclude that and affirm God's divinity. This is the whole point of the Quran. But some of us sometimes we're a bit short sighted when it comes to dawah and we're like, no, there's a creator. That's it. No, 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 that's just the beginning. Take people on that spiritual journey. And that, for me, it's so important for us to do that.
0: Right. Yeah, kind of like, um, you know, I always tell converts, and you are one yourself, it's like taking your shahada, which, by the way, is testimony, going back to testimony. um, Taking your shahada is just the beginning. You know, it's not like, oh, mashallah, I memorized the akidah, I know the five pillars, I can, you know, I've arrived. It's like no, you, you just got started, you know. Um, and I think that you know many of us out there listening probably recognize, like, wow, like what I thought or was true or was super convinced of about you know X, Y, and Z, whether it was in life or our dean, doesn't mean it fundamentally changed. But I kind of see it as like like my relationship with Allah, my you know conceptualization, if you want to call it that, right? Is this it has certainly evolved and changed right i always knew allah is what he is but the way i related to that or made meaning to that of course you know it just keeps you know, it's almost like you're peeling away different layers or feeling different textures and seeing different colors and and you know there's it's just a, it keeps getting richer guys you know so don't give up and you know it's not about you know hitting one place and that's it there are no arrivals if Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is who He is, there is no pinnacle of you know hitting. There's no roof to hit as far as your your spiritual heart and your relationship to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So this is also, I think, good uh, piece of advice that you shared here. And may Allah increase us. And thanks again for your time, Sidi Hamza. It was really nice to uh, finally connect with you. And uh, hope to have you on again soon.
1: may Allah bless you.
0: Thank you, brother. Wa alaikum. to love you oh.